Hey, welcome to the Trap Little Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the founder of the Music Entrepreneur Club. I'd like to welcome Dame Ritter to the podcast. Welcome, man. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate being back. I know. It's great. You're one of the few repeat guests. Only a few people get the repeat guest invite. So it's great to have you back. I feel honored. I've seen you had so many great guests. I thought that, you know, I just kind of got in at the beginning and maybe I wouldn't be allowed back because you had such high profile guests. I was like, maybe I don't fit in anymore, but I appreciate you bringing me back. It uh, makes me feel good. So thank you. (laughs) No, that is definitely not. You are always welcome on this. I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. So what Dave and I are going to do today, we're going to debunk some common myths about the common state of the music industry. If you follow either of us on Twitter, if you follow any music tech or music conversations happening on Twitter, you are probably hearing some common themes and we're going to go through a bunch of them. And I'm excited for this because, you know, sometimes you just want to be able to have a nuanced conversation with someone that gets it and you can have that. You can't do that on Twitter. You can't do these on social media. So I'm excited for this. Yeah, man, let's do it. So the first one is about ownership. This is a topic that I've talked about often. Dame is a former executive that ran a record label, so he understands this concept inside and out, has managed artists as well. But if you go on any social media app today, you go on YouTube, wherever, you are going to hear people talking about why you need to own your masters, why you need to own your publishing, and never give any of this stuff up. And all of that sounds great for headlines and all of that, but there's a bit more to it. And I think that this conversation has gotten so far to the other side where now people would rather own 100% of the small or little things that they have than actually making deals that make sense. So what's your take on this, Damon? Why do you think this conversation has gotten to the place that it is right now? You know, just to start out, I encourage artists to want to own their music, but I try to get them to separate the emotional tie to their music from like its actual value. And sometimes an artist will say, you know, my music is priceless. I don't care. And if that's your mentality, then you're going to want to maintain ownership no matter what the price. But in most of the world, your music is an asset and there's millions, if not billions of assets getting bought and sold every day. And there's a fair value for said asset. So what I tried, if an artist is able to detach the emotional component to their music, you know, it's just about understanding what the value of their music is. And if you are being fairly compensated for it, there's no problem with giving up a percentage ownership or a hundred percent ownership. You know, sometimes it seems like people are overpaying for an asset. I mean, I can't really say, I know that there's a lot of catalogs being sold today. I haven't done the valuation on them to know if they're overvalued or undervalued, but sometimes you can get fairly compensated for your asset. And then you can take that money and invest it in something else that you own. I mean, if ownership is super important to you, you know, you get the money, you can invest in real estate that can be passed down to your kids. Like there's other investment vehicles that might be more profitable for you, you know, going forward than your music. Maybe your music declines over time. You know, not everybody's catalog holds up. Very few catalogs hold up, you know, especially when you're talking about independent artists. 
So unless you have like a classic song or something like that, your catalog is probably going to depreciate in value unless you have a way to, to prop it up or to keep it growing. So taking that money and investing it in something else, Bitcoin, whatever you think is a great investment, you own that. So why don't we talk about a broader definition of ownership and not just the music? That's a good point. I think so much is focused on the music assets themselves because people think that's the only thing that's available. But no, especially now more than ever, there's so many other things out there that you as a multi-hyphenate entertainer, you're investing, you're probably doing other things. There's just other use cases that are there for that money. And there's a difference because I think a lot of people hear the tragic stories in the past, whether it's TLC and the issues that they had where they literally have the biggest songs in the country and they do not have money to their name to do stuff. I'm not saying that those things don't happen to plenty of other people, but to use that as your use case is a bit of that. I don't even want to say like once in a rare case, but it, there's an element of that that's comparative to like, oh, well, I'm not going to go to college because look at, you know, Zuckerberg or look at Steve Jobs and all of these other people that didn't graduate from college. So why do I need to get that degree? It's like, all right, I mean, sure, but we can't use these specific instances that highlight the most egregious or the most extreme aspect of the situation to justify the more likely outcome for everyone else that is in that situation. Yeah. When you go into these negotiations, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where a label wants to sign you, you just have to really educate yourself on how the business works, all the different revenue streams that are available. Because when you go to a major record label, unless you've built up some leverage, you're probably going to give up ownership of your masters, but they should be investing in you, giving you opportunities to build your brand that opens up the door for other revenue generating opportunities that aren't available to you now, right? And if you're smart with your money, if the money's coming in, I don't care where it's coming from. Like I can take the money. Let's just say they do take ownership of my masters. So it takes me a while to recoup and eventually get royalties from my music, but hopefully I maintain my publishing, but then it opens up opportunities to tour, to sell merchandise, to maybe get on TV, things like that. And then that brings revenue in. And then if you're smart with your money, you can invest it in different asset classes and have a diverse stream of revenue coming in. And yeah, maybe you gave up your ownership of your masters, but now you have multiple revenue streams and you're invested in different ways and you're comfortable and you can pass that down to your kids and maybe buy your masters back at some point. There is a fair value for all assets. And I just want artists to understand that it's not a scary thing if somebody wants to own your masters, as long as you're properly compensated, you know, just know what that means for you and feel comfortable in these negotiations. So when you were running Funk Volume, how often were you having these types of conversations with potential artists where you were trying to offer them what probably was a very fair deal, but they hit you with these Chance the Rapper lines or whoever it was being like, no, I want this, I want that? To be honest, not often. It was probably in the very beginning when negotiating with Hobson, because I think the problem with artists is they're always negotiating from the best case scenario, right? In their mind, they know they're going to blow. They know that they're going to make millions of dollars. But on the label side, the label has seen them sign. And this wasn't me at the time. This, we were just starting out. But I'm just saying in general, like um, from a label's perspective, it's not 100 percent chance you're going to blow right? There's a lot of artists that they sign 
that don't take off. They might lose money or break even. Whereas the artist is operating from a standpoint of a hundred percent chance I'm gonna make a million dollars. You know, the label's looking at it like, yeah, there's a chance you might make a million dollars, but there's also a chance that you make zero dollars. To make it simple, maybe it's a 50-50 chance for each. You know, you're going in there saying, hey, I want a million dollars, but the label's like, well, there's a 50% chance that you're going to make a million, a 50% that you're going to make a zero. So I'm going to offer you 500,000 because that's kind of the expected value. They're looking at it from like an expected value situation, but the artist is looking at that one node that's like best case scenario, and that's where they're operating from. So I think that's where there's oftentimes a disconnect when you're negotiating because in in an artist's mind, they're the hottest thing ever and they're going to be the next Drake. It's like, if you have that mentality to make it, you have to be in this position where you're used to betting on yourself. I think a lot of this, yeah, we're talking about the superstars. They are outliers because they continue to bet on themselves and it worked out for them. But you don't have all of the stats of all the people that had that same energy, that chance that Drake did, and it didn't work out for them. And it's funny you mentioned Drake, because I think about when, I think it was back in like 2009, like right before So Far Gone, it came out, he was doing an interview with DJ Semtex. And he was like, you know, I did consider going the independent route and just not going the record label route. And of course you got these people that are there saying, oh, well, imagine if Drake was independent right now, how much money he could be making. But Drake in 2009 is not the Drake that was there in 2015 or 2018, whatever his peak year was. We don't know what that would have been like. That's like saying, you know, what if Instagram wasn't acquired by Facebook? Look at what Instagram would have been like. I mean, you have to look at how these two came together and you can't separate it to be like, what if? Because we really don't know what would have happened. Coming from the corporate world into music, just kind of looking at it, I was like, okay, we get our numbers up. We're going to start turning heads and getting opportunities. And that was the case until a certain point. When you get to mainstream or radio, national television, like there's gatekeepers. Numbers aren't just going to bust down the door and get you every opportunity. So, and that's where a label comes in. I mean, a label has a huge history of relationships that are already in place. They have a global network. And that's something that I'm not going to say is impossible to tap into as an independent artist, but it would take a lot more time to do so. So you can't just look at Drake's success now, go back and say, well, what if he did that independently? Because it would have looked different. And I do think that it's possible. I mean, the closest thing we've seen to it is Chance, you know, because Chance is pretty mainstream and he's gotten radio play and and national global exposure. But Chance is a unique story, had some unique assistance. And, you know, it's not easily replicable. Right. I feel like Russ, it maybe is a little bit more replicable, but even there, there were some specific instances and what Russ did to rise in the mid 2010s landscape is completely different. Now you can't do Russ's playbook and expect to have the same results he did now. I think I told you this, but we, I tried to sign Russ when I was running funk volume. Like to me, he's a very unique artist. Like, he doesn't miss. Like, there's not a bad song that Russ puts out. And he lets you know that he does this kind of by his side. I know that he's opened the door to other producers recently, like Scott Storch and stuff like that. But he pretty much did all of that on his own. So to release a song, a quality song every week, but then he got the support of Kara Lewis. That's huge because she played the same role in Chance's career, just in terms of opening up those opportunities. That's not something that happens for most independent artists. So 
you really got to understand these stories. And I don't want to discourage anybody from being independent because I love when artists go independent. I was hoping to see after the success of Funk Volume, like I wanted to see so many other independent record labels that kind of build things from the ground up. I haven't seen that. I see artists still getting to a certain point and then signing. The good thing about that is now, you know, if you do build yourself up to a certain point, you can demand a certain level of money and support because if if you have the data to support it, if you have the streaming, if you have the followers, you know, and you can kind of hold out until you get what you want because you'd be making good money along the way. Yeah, it's about being able to build up the leverage and having things where you can feel comfortable with where it's at. So you're not making a decision out of desperation. You're making a decision because you feel that this is the best way forward. And yeah, I agree. Like similarly, I would never want to discourage anyone from doing it in many ways. You and I both have experience building companies that are independent from the system, but you can still do partnerships where it makes sense. You can still quote unquote, maintain your independence when you want to. It is a beautiful thing. I think that the option and the opportunities that major record labels offer will be there for some time. But as all these tools and these capabilities get better, it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens there. Yeah, I think it's the greatest time ever to be an artist because of what you can do independently. And then I think, you know, labels are getting more flexible around what the deal terms could look like, what the structures can look like, the length of the deal, things like that. Everything is negotiable and flexible. And if you have a fan base already, you know, the ball's kind of in your court. So that's the case there on ownership. There's much more nuance and I hope people do that. We're not going to see that nuance on social media because nuance does not exist on social media, but that's why there's podcasts like this. Just watch Shark Tank. Watch Shark Tank. Every company, you know, if you want a partner to come in and accelerate your business, you're going to give up some ownership. And if you watch Shark Tank, the more established businesses give up less of their business, you know, the ones that have a history of hopefully profitability, but at least revenue, increasing revenue, then the sharks come in at a lower dollar amount or they compensate them more generously for a bigger piece of their company, but they're buying equity into their company. So now the sharks own a percentage of what they're doing, sometimes a large percentage, sometimes a small percentage. That's how any business works. Anytime somebody gives you money, they're going to expect part ownership, at least in what you're doing. I mean, an artist is no different. That goes back to the leverage piece. It's like the more of that that you have, the less of that you have to give up. But if you're going to do the deal, you're going to have to give it up at some point. Right. Myth number two is that artists do not make money on streaming. You will see this everywhere. You will see the fractions of pennies on a dollar that an artist will get per stream. You will see all of the reports, whether it's from Spotify or from whoever on artists and trying to do things to increase royalties or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, you are hearing these headlines that artists are not making money on streaming. But I think we both know that there's a little bit more to it than that. Why do you think that this is a common thing that keeps being said? And what do you think the reality really is? Because the fraction of a penny is real low. Like when you see the number of what you get per stream, that number changes, but it's typically a a very small fraction of a penny. That just seems crazy, right? And then there's not a ton of artists doing this. Having a sustainable career in the music industry has never been easy. And I think the one piece of data that I need to really flesh out this analysis is 
how many independent artists were there prior to streaming? And if you can find that metric, please let me know, because that would really put the nail in the coffin or would tell, hey, Dame, you're tripping on this. Because I believe that there's more independent artists making a living today. And a big part of that is streaming. But I think that there's way more artists not being able to make a living off of streaming. So you're hearing them complain. But I would argue that the same artist that's complaining about not being able to make a living off streaming probably wasn't able to make a living slanging CDs out of their trunk either or selling downloads. And I think the metrics just came out for Spotify. Daniel Eck released off the top. I want to say there were like 15,000 artists that were making 50,000 or more just on Spotify. So you make the assumption that those people are making at least 100,000. If Spotify is half of maybe a little less, I don't know. Then I think the number was like 7,000 making 100,000 or more. And then they had um, the million dollar mark and I forget what the number was, but we're seeing like all these artists. But I just think artists think that it should be easier to make a living from music. And it's like, no, this is the NBA level. Like, To me, if you're able to have a healthy music career, that's like making it to the NBA. Only a small percentage of athletes get to be in the league. Only a small percentage of athletes get to play in the NFL. I think there's more artists, obviously, that are able to make a living from music, and you can do it for a much longer time if you're able to sustain that fan base. But yeah, I just think it's the frustration. It's the frustration of a lot of artists and I get it because, again, it's very difficult to do. It's just that frustration bubbling up. So it's just like you can't make a living from streaming because I can't do it. It's like that cognitive dissonance. And it's just that frustration. And I feel sorry for a lot of artists. But on the flip side, I see a lot of artists that are able to build community, a community of fans that constantly stream their music. And they're making great money doing what they love. So I, I know that it's possible because I'm talking with these artists every day. And for the artists that haven't gotten there yet, I wouldn't get discouraged. I would strategize, work on their music, be consistent, you know, engage with their audience. It takes a lot of work. It's not easy. I mean, some people might have got on easy. That might have been a fluke, some viral video, what, what have you. But it's not an easy career. So it's possible, but it's extremely difficult. So as a frame of reference for the people listening, because I know you've talked to several artists that it is working for, as you mentioned, How big would you say are those artists and how often are they putting out projects? There was an artist that I was managing, you know, I would say probably making like 300,000 a year from streaming. He releases pretty frequently. I would say at least a project a year and then some singles sprinkled, you know, but the values in the community and that's any company, right? Like the values in the community that you build. Because it's not really driven off of playlist support because playlist support might come, might go. But if you have that cult following, those folks that are really engaged, the ones that are looking forward to your next drop and are listening to even your first album, that's where the streaming revenue really builds. And that's what he has. And that's what like Snow the Product has. That's what my guys have from Funk Volume. I mean, I still own some of the music from Funk Volume, so I'm literally seeing the checks every month. It definitely tapered off a bit. But it's held up because of the community and the quality of music. That makes sense. And I think you brought up a good point about this in the beginning. It's like we have to compare to what it was before. So let's go back to the late 90s, the peak of the CD era. 
because in my opinion, superstars then were making money, superstars now are making money. So the argument really is about the middle class. And the people feel that, at least from what I've heard, I've seen it anecdotally, I'd have to go look at the stats, but they feel like it was easier for the middle class artists to succeed back then because their logic is that even if you were selling, you know, something in like the high tens of thousands or like low hundreds of thousands of like total albums, even if that was 20 bucks, you as an artist are taking your four or $5 from every one of those, you can make some serious money, or at least that's the logic. I guess if you were someone that was selling 25,000 albums a year, you get 25% of that revenue from each album, album is 20 bucks. You then have, you know, six figures that you're making at least. The thought now though, is that they're like, okay, they're not making that. But the thing is the dynamic also flipped because you had to rely heavily on certain distributors and making sure that you had your product in places. And I'm sure it was very tough to fight for product placement when there's who, you know, biggest rappers in the nineties or biggest artists, whoever in the nineties, getting the best shelf at Sam Goody or Best Buy or Tower Records, wherever it is. But you look at now, you look at the internet, you don't have to just either rely on those distributors or whoever else. The internet is huge. I'm sure you probably saw it with Funk Volume and some of the artists you manage after, like you can build this community of all of the people around the world that are thriving and wanting to listen to this music. And I do think that is possible. So even though there's technically a disadvantage in terms of how the product is being sold, you had another advantage here where now, of course, it's a very different product, but you're able to now capture the frequency and how much people are really listening to it. And if you're able to build that community, there's something there. So yeah, I got to do the data myself, but my gut tells me that the middle class experience. Maybe with certain use cases, it's a little bit different. And I know that's why a lot of people have tried to push for like these, what SoundCloud just put out, these fan-powered royalties and having it more based on how many people are actually streaming your music and then getting compensated for that as opposed to it being in this pool. But even some of the people that have looked at those studies have questions about how much of a difference that would make for the middle-class artist. So I still think it's a better opportunity now. But yeah, what's your take? Yeah. I mean, I don't even think a middle class really existed back then because we have to look beyond streaming and look at all of the different revenue streams that are available to artists these days because you know, Spotify not only gives you streams, but it gives you visibility and hopefully you know, introduces you to new fans that potentially buy your merch, that potentially go to your show, that potentially watch your YouTube videos. So you get the YouTube revenue. Maybe you start a Patreon there's so many different revenue streams that weren't available to artists in the 90s that there actually is a middle class. Because back then, I feel like, you know, there were some standouts. You know, I know that like E-40, the whole Bay Area was pretty much independent. Master P, like they made a lot of money independently, but that wasn't normal. Everybody wasn't uh, Master P. Everybody wasn't E-40. At that time, it was like you either got with a label or nobody heard you. Like you had to kind of sign a label to get an opportunity. And now that's not the case. We can do our own thing and, and make music on our own terms, not have somebody tell you that you need to change your name or you need to look like this. Like you can test it yourself by just going to social media and seeing if people respond to you. And it ties back actually with the point you had made in the ownership discussion. It's like the way to measure this isn't looking at music industry revenue 
compared to music industry revenue. It's looking at, okay, what is the total revenue from all of the things that you can get? And I'm putting music industry in that bucket because making money off of the sound recordings and publishing is one thing, but I'm more talking about everything else and what the internet has allowed you to do. We need to compare that to whatever you were doing at the height of the CD era as well, and not just the actual revenue from the songs. Right, for sure. The third thing that we're going to debunk is the hottest phrase and the hottest trend right now, which is NFTs. And NFTs are going to save me, Dame. NFTs are going to save the artist, and this is what they're going to do. So everyone needs to get the cash quick. Man, I'll say this up front. I don't know everything there is to know about the NFT space. I'm still learning myself. But, you know, I've gotten to a little back and forth with somebody on Twitter the other day that said NFTs were going to replace the role of a manager. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm like, what? Like that doesn't even either you don't know what a manager does or I don't know what NFTs can do. That was just crazy. You know, there are definitely some artists without that many fans that have entered the space and are selling us like a song for like a thousand dollars. We had a few people or we had two artists come on the MEC and talk about their experience. They're first movers, right? There's always going to be a benefit of being a first mover in the space, you know, but eventually, and I would say even now, like people are flooding in and there's tons of NFTs being minted, but like, who's going to keep buying this stuff? Who's going to keep buying? So I think, you know, if, if you're a first mover, and you're able to authentically tap into the crypto community. I think that's the other piece. You know, they have a culture. I think that if you don't have an audience already in their community and just try to start selling stuff, I don't know if that's going to work very successfully. You know, I think you have to join the community on Twitter. From what I understand, there's a huge crypto community on Twitter. You have to join and authentically kind of tap in and, and learn what they're about in order to be successful and be embraced. Or you come in with a huge following, but that doesn't solve independent artists problem. And like I said, at some point, the space is going to be so flooded with NFTs. I just can't imagine that the buyers are going to keep pace with the supply. So unless there's something that I'm missing, the same thing is going to apply. You're going to have to develop a fan base, make good art consistently and then learn how to market this, you know, come up with a strategy of what your NFTs are, you know, what people get access to, be creative. Like the same things are going to apply to if I was starting a Patreon or whatever, like it's going to apply. It's definitely not a savior, in my opinion, unless I'm missing something. And that's possible that I'm missing a huge piece of this, but I just don't see it that way. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the space is attractive right now for obvious reasons. People are making a good amount of money, but I think the people that have been at least the most successful are the ones who have done their homework. And in many ways, we're already making these steps before it became really popular in what it is. I just spoke to Micah Johnson, had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, former baseball player, MLB turned artist. And he was doing this work in 2020 before a lot of us even knew what this was. And he was able to make it so as successful, but he already had this concept and this idea that many ways would have lived even if there wasn't NFTs around it. So like NFTs, it wasn't the end of what he was doing. It was a means to get his bigger picture out there about what he was doing. And it wasn't just that he was able to have a base that he was able to coalesce. He was able to tap into the network. And from the other people that I've seen do it, 
yeah, it's either people like him in that perspective, or like you said, the people that are like big celebrities that have already done it, that have massive followings. Things like Logan or Jake Paul, like one of those people, like they made like a ton of money on these things. And I saw that Kings of Leon had done pretty well with something they had put out recently. So there's space and there's opportunity. And I think the potential is awesome from all of the things that I've read, but there's a little bit of a difference between people being like, oh, let's try this out as opposed to this rush of let's get something out there. This is hot and we got to take advantage of this before it goes away. And I get everyone's excited to think about what it could replace. Sure. There's plenty of things that can replace and there's plenty of aspects that I think are attractive to artists because yes, it is an opportunity to have a limited supply of something that was once abundant and I think music is a great corollary for that because so many people feel like there was value in selling the music that they have and they feel like that value is no longer there in the Spotify streaming era. So like, I understand the connections there and there is great opportunity with that for the right thing, but I think it still has to come from a place like any type of product you're putting out. The product can't just be the NFT, right? The product has to be some type of feeling or connection behind it and not just the means for it. And I think like anything, we'll see people who are good at it rise to the top. And I think we'll see that five years from now, 10 years from now. And I don't think this is like a phase of a thing that's necessarily going in that way. However, I think the hysteria and the excitement that you see right now, that may ebb and flow. So I'm interested to see what this discussion is like a year, two years, five years from now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great thing that it's a potential another revenue stream. I mean, independent artists have so many different revenue streams that they can tap into. But I think it's who's going to use it in a creative way and, you know, really allow artists to have a unique fan experience. Who's going to create that unique fan experience? But you still have to build community for that you know, like for it to really be valuable. I know a funk volume existed. Like my mind was already thinking about like all the different things that we could do because our community would have been perfect for something like NFTs. And I know that we could have done really well. So I'm excited about it because it is a value add. It's another revenue stream that independent artists can tap into. I just would encourage all independent artists to really do their research come up with something unique and creative and authentically tap into the crypto community, get in their own clubhouse, they're on Twitter. I think Reddit, like, you know, learn, don't just look at this as like, Oh, I'm about to come up. I'm about to make a thousand dollars on one song. They really value their community and it seems like they're protective of it as well. So authentically tap into the community and um, figure out something creative and it might work out for you. Well said. All right. So the last myth that we're going to debunk is that artists make all their money on tour. And because of that, that is where the 100% focus should be in terms of a monetization aspect. You can probably assume what our thought is on a lot of this based on what we talked about streaming and everything else. But Touring is one of those things that I think, yes, it can be quite lucrative, but I think a few things. There's some hidden costs that people don't always think about and the opportunity cost of your time with that, and also just other ways to make a profitable living that aren't necessarily just being on the road. Yeah. I mean, every artist's revenue mix is different. And I know some people that make more of their money through sync placements. That's a majority of the revenue. I know some artists that it's more touring. I know some artists where the biggest 
pot is in merchandise. And then I know artists where the biggest pot is in their streaming. What I would encourage artists is to really kind of balance it out because we never know when something like, you know, hopefully COVID never happens again. But obviously nobody was touring in the past year. So all that money dried up. And if you were heavily weighted towards touring, you were in a pretty bad space. So hopefully this was just a reminder that we should diversify our revenue streams, hopefully have revenue streams even outside of music to diversify even more and give you a little bit more of a cushion so something happen. But artists are making money all types of ways these days. And what I don't think when it comes to touring as an independent artist, I don't think artists really understand how much you're asking of someone to buy a ticket and come to your show and like what level of fan you need to have for somebody to be willing to do that, right? For them to buy a ticket, like let's just say it's 20 bucks, add the little fee, it fee probably makes it 30 bucks, whatever. So they're going to leave the house, maybe have to get a babysitter. You have to really love an artist to do that. So you have to really build that type of trust, that type of support online so that people are willing to do that. And there's some artists that luckily for us, like we built up enough demand that we never lost money touring. Our first tour, we made money. From what I now understand is like a lot of artists invest in touring, right? They go out and tour and they kind of expect to lose money. And then hopefully the second time around, they go to that back to that city and it starts to build and build and build. You know, it's like strange music, but that was before the internet where they kind of had to do it that way. And when you talk about the hidden costs, like it, it does cost a lot to travel, especially if you want to travel comfortably. You know, the first time we hit the road, we were just in a van, got one, maybe two hotel rooms. Like it's not comfortable at all. It's not comfortable at all in the beginning, you know, and then eventually we scaled up to a bus, but then you got to get insurance and, you know, we're shipping merchandise. Like there's a lot that goes into touring that you need to be prepared for. So what I typically tell independent artists is really just engage with that early audience, build it up, you know, until you feel comfortable that there is demand for you to tour in a city. Typically artists think they're ready to tour before they're really ready to tour. That's what I've seen at least. Obviously, it feels like that worked out well for you because you said you made money on every tour you went on, and that's not the life and the experience that a lot of artists have had. And yeah, I feel like I've heard similar. It's like this cost you have to like put in, especially in the early stages. I've heard similar about performing at festivals too. Artists will put more money into their festival set and all the travel and everything else than the fee that they get because they hope that they can get more money on the other end of this. Cardi B someone that I've heard speak about this a few times where she was like her first time that she performed at Coachella. She was like, I lost money, right? I had to put money into it. And then Another cost that's related to touring, specifically when it's your own tour, is making sure that the production and the lighting, not that all that stuff is great, but all of it looks good on social media, especially when that first tour, because if that image looks great, that is going to be what other people will see and then make them want to get more tickets. It will help your buzz. It'll increase demand for your tour. But if those first few photos don't look right or don't generate the excitement, you may have a much harder time selling tickets for the rest of your tour. So there's so many elements of that. Like, how are you going to make sure the first few can set the tone so that everyone else will want to buy tickets for it? Yeah. I mean, you're probably not bringing lights the first time out because that's a heavy expense. And then obviously you can't put lights in just a regular van. You're going to have to pull at least a trailer. 
But the advice that you have to make sure people have a good time and has to look good, feel good, you do because you want people to come back. You want people that are watching online to be like, damn, I need to be there. Right. So when it comes to my city, I'm buying a ticket. So to substitute for maybe what you can't afford, if you can't have like the video running and the lights and everything like that, you know, maybe there's just certain parts of your set where I know that we used to invite the audience up and have them rap at certain points. There were like certain things that we would do or that Hobson and the guys would do that allowed for audience participation. And I think that was captured a lot on social media and that made people feel like more a part of the show and, and people wanted to be there to be a part of the show. But artists like Travis Scott, who's like built his show. I've never been to a Travis Scott show, but from what I understand, it's amazing. So I know there was heavy investment in the type of stuff he does. So yeah, you always want to be thinking long-term. You always want to be thinking long-term, even when it comes to your merch. It's not about this first t-shirt sale. It's about the lifetime value of that customer. If you sell one shirt, even if that person says, hey, I need a new shirt, because a lot of artists don't like customer service. They're terrible at customer service, right? So they'll be like, I'm not sending them another shirt. It's like, okay, you don't send them another shirt. That person's never going to buy anything from you ever again. So even if you lose money on the shipping the second time, you want to make sure your fans are happy so that they stay connected to you and they buy a third shirt and a fourth shirt and a fifth shirt. So, you know, that's the kind of the same concept with the show and investing in your show and making sure that people have a good experience. Because if you're an asshole and you're not engaging with the fans or your show sucks, they ain't coming back again. Yeah, and I think that is a great way to like recap this, right? This is clearly a worthwhile thing that takes time, but once again, it's where the nuance comes. It's going to take time as you build this up to get to that point where even if all your other revenue streams are set, that's going to be the one that you're making the most money. And who knows? Everyone may have a preference, right? You could be a successful artist that loves to travel, and part of you just wanting to be on the road will help that. If you do not want to be on the road as much, that's fine too. There's other ways that you could maximize this. And I feel like that's the overall tone with all of the myths that we've debunked with this. A lot of artists don't like the tour and lucky for them, there's all these other revenue streams, whether it's NFTs or having a membership program or YouTube revenue or selling features. There's so much other revenue streams where you don't necessarily have to tour. That's why, again, I think it's the best time ever to be an artist because you can kind of set your career up the way you want and do the things that you want to do once you get to a certain point, like once you have a community and a, and a fan base in place, you know, you can kind of play it how you want. I think it's great. Same here. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I want to hear about your experience managing comedians, because I think this is a dope thing that you've been doing. And I'm sure there's a lot of similarities between your experience managing artists, but I'm sure there's some different things too. How's it been? So I manage two comedians. One name is Big Ja and the other is Minx. They do really well on Facebook and YouTube. We're trying to make that jump to television and film. For me, comparing the experiences, it's much less stressful. But part of that, again, I'm not dealing with a sample size of 100. You know, this is my first time managing comedians. And it just happens to be somebody that I went to college with, somebody that I've known for over 20 years. So maybe it's easier just dealing with a person that you have such a natural connection with and it was already a friend. That's probably more of it. 
other than saying, hey, it's a difference between artists and comedians, right? So there's definitely a higher level of maturity with Big Job because we're about the same age. I feel good, though. I mean, I, I love what he's doing. I love the community that he's built. I'm a fan, even if I wasn't working with them. Like, I think their stuff is hilarious. So I'm super excited. And it's almost like deja vu because in 2008, I kind of jumped in the music industry, not knowing what I was doing and just figuring it out. Now, again, in 2021, I'm jumping in, trying to get into television and film and saying, okay, how do we figure this out? But a lot of it is the same. It goes back to community building, fan engagement, being consistent and putting out quality content, whether you're an artist or a comedian, that's really what it's about, you know, and that's what we're trying to do. And I think the dope thing with that is that when you started with music, it was this turning point for the industry. So not only are you trying to level up on everything that's happening, everyone in this industry is kind of building the plane as they're flying and trying to figure it out. And to some extent, the same thing is happening now with media and what a lot of communities are doing with TV and film. At the superstar level, Netflix has obviously changed the game for a lot of comedians, but I do think at the area starting out, Facebook and YouTube have changed the game for a lot of other comedians too. I mean, I look at someone like a Kev on stage, like a Spice Adams and how hilarious they are. And it's like, if there wasn't social media, would they have ascended to the levels that they have? Because before it was either like, you know, you're on Def Comedy Jam or we just don't have a way to see you unless you're more of a local thing. And that's the thing that I really like about it. Yeah. So the one drawback to that, that I will say is because you can make good money on Facebook and YouTube, it kind of allows the talent to take their foot off the gas a little bit. If we weren't doing as well as we were doing just on YouTube and Facebook, I feel like we would get to television and film much faster because it would be more of a grind and it wouldn't be as comfortable. So as great as it is that we can make a living where we're at while we're still kind of banging on the door trying to get into television and film, I feel like the guys would have a different sense of urgency if we didn't have the opportunities of YouTube and Facebook. And so that's my job as a manager saying, okay, where is it that you guys want to be? You guys want to be a television and film. You guys want to be Kevin Hart, right? What we're doing now is great for YouTube and Facebook and you guys are comfortable but that's not going to get you to Kevin Hart. <laughs> I hesitate to use the words working harder because that's what crumbled my label. But it's essentially we have to work harder. If you're telling me you want to be Kevin Hart, I don't have Kevin Hart's schedule on my computer, but I know from sun up to sundown, that guy is going, you know, he's going, he's cranking out different things. He's in meeting, he's shooting like that. So we have to kind of recreate that energy and how do we create that sense of urgency while you're making such good money on YouTube and Facebook? We have to figure out like how to get to that level. Uh, that's part of my job as a manager to kind of keep the pressure on, keep reminding them like, hey, there's way more levels to this. And for the folks listening, what do the monetization streams and the revenue streams look like from YouTube and Facebook for the comedians? Again, if you have a community and you're starting to get a lot of I mean, they get hundreds of thousands, millions of views, you know, but you can make tens of thousands of dollars a month on these platforms, you know, then layer in the merchandise and the sponsorship opportunities. You know, the people on YouTube and Facebook are doing well. They're doing well. And then Kev on stage is taking it to a whole nother level. He bought a studio. He's got that social distance comedy show with, you know, people pay every other week to watch a show live. That brand is killing it. 
but he has an app now, kind of like a Netflix, where it's got a lot of a black content on it. It doesn't have that much content on it yet, but I can see where he's going with it. It's kind of going to be like a black Netflix. So that's why I'm trying to get these guys to understand. Like, this is the base, but we have so much opportunity of what we can do with our own content. And then while we're doing our own thing, putting out our content, there's all these platforms that need content. There's so many platforms that need content, whether it's Hulu, Peacock, Netflix. We're going to be in a good place. If you're creating quality content, you're going to be in a good place because everybody needs content right now. That makes sense. And yeah, I mean, personally, I think Big Jaws videos are hilarious. I got to check out Minx. But yeah, man, it's dope. It's cool to see that obviously there's so much of what you learned that is relevant to this other space. And I know you say it may be hard to compare like artists' stress versus comedians' stress, but sounds like it's working out. So I'm excited for you, man. I'm definitely looking forward to see how it goes. Thank you. I'm having fun. I'm I'm excited again. It took me a few years to get my mojo back, but um, I'm feeling really good and, and I'm happy. And I, I can say that honestly, man. So I'm excited about this year. All right. Well, Dane, before we let you go, anything else you want to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? Yeah, I want to let them know about the Music Entrepreneur Club. The Music Entrepreneur Club is still going strong. It's still a passion project of mine. We go live every Monday and Thursday. We're sponsored by BeatStars, but it's really just an, a music business education platform to give up-and-coming creators good information. Because like we've talked about for the past hour, it's very difficult to have a career in the music industry, but it's pretty much impossible if you don't have the right information. So, you know, we try to bring people to the Music Entrepreneur Club that really know what they're talking about. And it's free. It's open to the public. So just come to musicentrepreneurclub.com or check us out on Instagram at Music Entrepreneur Club. It's a dope platform that I hope more young creators tap into. Agreed. And I'll double down on that for anyone listening. It is a great community. Dave has been fortunate to bring me on as a guest speaker. That's been great. And I think, you know, I follow along on Facebook as well. I think the content is really great. So regardless of where you are on this level, go check it out. It's good stuff. Thanks, man. It's been a pleasure. And we're going to do another one of these soon because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of other myths that we'll have to debunk about this damn industry. Yeah, there always is, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm down to come on anytime. And the next time you're in LA, please reach out. Will do. All right. Thanks, bro. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. 